Welcome to the Kixology Podcast, a show all about running shoes. My name is Brian Metzler, your host and resident running shoe geek. I'm also the author of Kixology, a book about the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. In this episode, I'm joined by Chris McDougall, the New York Times bestselling author of Born to Run and several other great books, including Running with Sherman and Natural Born Heroes. In this episode, we delve deep into the evolution of running shoes in the 21st century, focusing on the drastically different designs, how and why trends have shifted since the minimalist boom, and also the best and worst sociological aspects of running and running shoes. Thanks for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Brian, man, good. Good to catch up with you. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I think about a year ago, we were talking about uh, one of your books, uh, Running with Sherman in Boulder, Colorado. Um, obviously, it's been, it's been a wild year, to say the least. I think uh, certainly both in the world of running, but everything else in 2020, I guess, first uh, catches up. Uh, you had a book come out last year. I think it did pretty well. Um, what's been up to you? Man, you know, but I feel like that's a question that almost nobody in the world wants to hear an answer to because everybody is like, what have you been up to, dude? What have I been up to? Like everyone's <laughs> been through unbelievable tumult uh, in the past six or seven months. Right. So I'll see, how my, I'll see how my story holds up to everybody else's. Okay. So we live in super rural Pennsylvania, like uh, Amish farm country. Our nearest neighbor is a half a mile away. Almost all of our neighbors are Amish and Mennonites. So that's that's kind of gives you the background. And when COVID hit, I was kind of looking down the barrel of a winter where we could be possibly snowed in with no neighbors who drive 30 miles from the nearest hospital uh, in a house that's only heated by wood. And I started thinking, man, if we got our kids stuck here and one of us gets sick, this could be a bad scenario. So is there an escape pod? And the escape pod was, <laughs> I know it doesn't sound like an escape pod. The escape pod was run away to Hawaii. And <laughs> that's exactly what we ended up doing. My wife grew up here and always planned to move back. And we've been kind of like eyeing a move here for a long time. And all of a sudden in June, like, man, it's going to be a tough winter in Pennsylvania. I thought, or it could be a fucking awesome winter in Hawaii. So that's it, man. In a matter of six weeks, dude, we shut down the entire operation. Uh, Rehomed all the animals to great homes, cleaned out the house, sold the farm, got rid of the trucks and the cars, packed one crate, and moved to Hawaii. Did it all in six weeks. Unbelievable! And was this all before uh, any word of COVID got out? Uh, no, this is this is all like post announcement. So, so the timeline was, yeah, you know, COVID started gathering steam in March. April, the kids were home doing online school. And, you know, the, the Wi-Fi out in Pennsylvania is horrific, man. It's like <laughs> sort of like pre-dial-up era Wi-Fi. Stone and, tablets, right? Was that? Stone tablets, right? Yeah, pretty much, exactly. Just chiseling away and, it's, and mailing it. And then, so it was kind of April. May, I got the idea. I started thinking about it. And then June, June 1, I pulled the trigger. And by July 15th, house was sold, farm was closed, and we were on our way. Well, that's a pretty good story. Um, a lot to catch up on, like I said, regarding all things, but that's a pretty good story. Uh, the good thing is you're surviving uh, COVID, obviously, and, and and here we are late in 2020, and who knows what's next, right? For sure. For sure, man. Um, that's it. Just kind of find your your peace and your personal oasis and go for it. So talking here with Chris McDougall, best-selling author of several books, including Born to Run and Running with Sherman, which came out last year. 
Chris, it's always fun talking to you because you're always such a great storyteller. Um, I think that's uh, certainly uh, inherent in your journalism, in your writing, but also your presentation. Uh, you know, having you having listened to you talk about books and stories, it's like you know, I laugh, I I I I, I kind of frown, I cry, I do all these things, and like you know, the last two times I heard you talk were in Boulder, Colorado, and I, I believe Chamonix, and certainly those were both great. Uh, um, I guess you know, getting, getting back to Born to Run, which is now 11 years ago, it, it seems like you're in intent on writing that book and we can tell with we can tell later what happened with that book but like um your intent was to tell stories right it was it was an adventure story about a guy who was running down running and living in mexico and it it certainly became so much more but i think your intent was to tell a story about uh, this adventure right you know brian i don't know if you ever ran across a writer and an editor named bill gifford Uh, oh yeah yeah bill okay yeah right so bill was my editor at Philadelphia Magazine. Okay. And he was really instrumental because he was my editor right when I was transitioning from doing news reporting into doing uh, longer form magazine work. And he, the first story of mine that Bill edited was a National Magazine Award finalist. And it's one of these things where I'll say, I'm going to give Bill north of 50% of the credit, maybe 60 for that, for the success of that story. And for two main reasons. One was he gave me this bit of advice, which was don't tell the story from the end. Tell it from the beginning, which really opened my eyes to like how a story should be presented. Because by the time you gather all the research and you know all the stuff, you're kind of at the end of the story. Like you've done it. You know way right. more than the reader knows. And nobody wants to be presented with the kind of the facts. What they want to understand is how did you get there? That was the first thing that he opened my eyes to. And the second thing was make the people come alive. Let the people speak for themselves. Don't speak for the people. So these are two bits of advice, which I feel like you want to talk about like chisel and stone tablets. Like those are, if I have a 10 commandments, there really is only two, those two bits of advice. Instrumental, so, instrumental. Huge, huge. And so that, that, that article was about uh, my row, uh, rowing coach that I knew. And I've, I feel like I've followed Gift's advice ever since. And so with Born to Run, it was exactly like that. You know, at the time, 2004, 2005, I was just only then becoming familiar with the world of ultra running. Uh, and I was only an outsider. I was pretty much at the same stage as everybody else in the world who had just read Ultra Marathon Man and goes, holy crap, like, right, right. Has read 200 miles, you know, and Ultramarathon, man, was such a rousing adventure story that I said, this is really cool. Like, what else is out there? So I basically what I wanted to do was write um, a version of Ultramarathon, man. And with the same kind of um, – oh, sorry, dude. My cat is out here. Anyway, so that's I what I was looking for. Yeah. So um, – I want to tell the story as I understood things, as I was learning them. And that was basically what I was trying to do with Born to Run. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, you did tell quite, quite a story and, and you know, about a guy we both knew well, uh, Micah True, or God rest his soul, uh, a.k.a. Caballo Blanco. And certainly that was, uh, you know, the big part of the story and that whole fascinating <clears throat> tale of, of living with Robert Murray and, 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 and kind of understanding that and, and developing that race and such was a great story. But what came out of it, and maybe for the purpose of this podcast, is certainly – uh, the running shoe discoveries that you came across, both for yourself and both industry wide. Um, 
you know, it's like it, it's crazy to look back now because because that was when you were starting that and probably reporting on that. And when it was published in 2009, that was like the height of this whole revolution in shoe design. We went from the early 2000s where everything was like bulky and heavy and had all these like vinyl and leather overlays and like neon colors for no reason, all these plastic parts and, and weren't really kind of geared toward, you know, running from a biomechanical point of view to to this crazy uh, minimalist uh, revolution, if you will, and, and and certainly learning how to run differently. And, it, and it, it didn't happen overnight, obviously. It happened over the span of quite a while. And certainly brands were working on it as you were involved in this. Nike had its free project. Newton was working with some stuff. Uh, the five fingers came out, but but at the same time, you discovered this this group of um, indigenous people in Mexico that were running on next to nothing with you know just natural movements. I mean that must have been astounding when it happened. I've heard this story before, and a lot of people have read the book, but I mean still now thinking about that, it's a modern day like and it's, it's it's an amazing story. The other thing about it though, Brian, I, I remember my thought process at the time, and it was skepticism. Yeah, you know, I, I was coming out of the background of hearing repeatedly forever, you know, you got to rotate your shoes. You got to replace your shoes every 300 miles. You got to go to the running specialty short, you know, it's it just pounded, pounded, pounded in your head. And so when I'm down in the Copper Canyon and I'm meeting the, the Ravamuri and I'm, I'm seeing them in their sandal, I'm kind of like, yeah, but you know, something, there's something else I'm not seeing. And I meet Barefoot Ted and He's the only barefoot runner I know. And it's like, okay, I like Ted now. But back then, I'm like, this guy is <laughs> he, he's, he's one stroke away from an asylum. And so anyway, I, I was very skeptical. I, I kept thinking, like, there's something here I'm not quite getting. And even when I wrote Born to Run, that chapter on running shoes, I was very close, man. I was really, like, 50-50 whether to cut it out of the book entirely because – I just wasn't sure if I was right. Like I, I wasn't sure. It seemed like all the evidence is leading into a certain direction, but I just did not completely trust the conclusion. So uh, at the time, I think I was in, in a very similar position to a lot of people, which was that this argument in favor of minimal, minimalism makes a lot of sense. Yet at the same time, there's so much conventional wisdom that seems to be built against it. I couldn't reconcile the two things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And obviously you, like me, and like a lot of the people, certainly were looking for answers relative to our own running, our own, you know, um, somewhat broken down state of physicality and, and, and things. And, and you know, we've been told through all the years uh, that this running shoe is best for this, or this runner wears this, and this foam is great. And certainly the running shoe industry, which I've talked about and written about quite a bit, has a lot of marketing <laughs> to, to to a fault, you know, obviously with, with um, you know, they, they play on the, on the, on the joy and, and, and fitness of running. And it, it comes down to marketing this foam and these new designs and everything else. And it doesn't necessarily mean that these shoes are built you know, like for better running. And certainly I think a lot of people started to look um, at running differently, at shoes differently. It's certainly how to run differently. The one thing that I always thought was missing in the equation up until about that point was that all these new runners were coming into the scene and uh, didn't have a background of running, didn't have a background of training, um, probably weren't functionally strong in a lot of ways, um, as, as most average Americans, you know, aren't, they're not, they're not certainly, uh, equivalent of what our elite runners are. And, and so I think certainly that played a role as well. And, and certainly, you know, running injuries continue to be a, a thing that, uh, you know, plagues the sport and plagues the recreational aspect of it. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but it seems like obviously you were looking for that and, and again, so was I. And I, I tried a bunch of different shoes. I liked the feel of running in, you know, low to the ground racing flats. At the same time, I also liked foam too. And so it was interesting when all this stuff came about, 
um, you know, five, five fingers and everything else. Um, and then, but then, it, you know, it quickly changed, but I guess, you know, looking back, there was obviously some academics that went behind that. There was, there was uh, a lot of brands that, that kind of, uh, reverted on their designs and got into minimal shoes. Um, and athletes became more prominent like Anton Kropitschka. Um, but it didn't last. I, I mean, refresh me on that and kind of how, how, how you saw that happen. There's a couple of things. Remind me if this is in Kixology or not, cause I don't have my copy with me. Um, there was a couple of guys up in Manchester, New Hampshire, that had their own little running shoe startup. Again, this would have been almost 15 years ago. And I did a little article for them, I think, about them for, I think, Runner's World. And, but they told me something, and I'm wondering whether this stat plays out. They said that 80% of running shoes are not purchased by runners. 80% of running shoes are purchased either by walkers or purely for, uh, what do you call it, like style reasons. Yep, yep, and, lifestyle. Lifestyle. So again, I, I don't know if that stat has ever been substantiated, but if it's true, then to me, it really could be a major piece of this equation, which yeah, is no, that. I, I, I was going to agree. Yeah, I agree. But I, I do think that, that, that the running shoe has become the great American casual shoe, you know, and, and that happened somewhere in probably the 90s, I think. Yeah. And this is right. Again, this one went right around the time. I met these guys like the early 2000s. And so. To me, maybe that's really a big part of the puzzle is what's really driving the train is that the major shoe manufacturers realize that eight out of every 10 of their consumers are not going to run these things. So they're really not designing them for someone who's running. They're really designing right. them for someone who's walking a mall or going out on a date. And so right. they're designed not to really be comfortable at mile 18 of a marathon. They're really designed <laughs> to be comfortable for someone walking back and forth at JCPenney looking in the mirror. So right. that, that, that to me is like a big, you know, sort of little uh, um, part of the mystery. But I, I think, you know, the second thing, which I really feel is instrumental. And again, looking back at Born to Run, I wonder if it would have changed my thinking or not. But in the past 10 years, what I've been thinking about more and more is, you know, really the problem isn't the starting line. The problem is the finish line. The starting line is not what kind of shoes you buy, whether you're a minimalist or a maximalist. The problem is the finish line, like what goal you're aiming at. And True. really, maybe, Brian, I wonder if the real culprit in all of these questions is competition, whether we are so focused on performance that we are just basically running ourselves constantly into the red zone. And that's the problem. That could be a great point. I mean, certainly, um, I, I think that I think getting back to your point about certainly the notion that this this running shoes aren't built necessarily for runners. I mean, if we look at you know if we, if we try and separate you know runners uh, discreetly with you know people who who train and, and race at a high level and everyone else, and then you know certainly the people that are you know uh, you know walking or just finishing a, a race, so to speak, it, it is a diverse kind of. Uh, group of people with, with different uh, levels of fitness and physicality and, and runners we know come in all sizes and shapes. But, but I think, I think too, though, I think that um, I think that uh, some people are, are running or doing these races to maybe their own peril. I think um, either, either that, you know, my theory has always been that anyone can run a marathon, but not everyone should. And right. I thought, I, I always thought that like, that some of the programs, even, even though well-intended like team and training, um, brought people to uh, train for a marathon and eventually got them to the finish line. But I, I often saw people that were so broken down uh, that, that by the time they did their 20 mile and 22 mile long run uh, weeks before the marathon, they were, they were already dead and they were already saying like, Oh, I'm, I'm no, I'll never do this again. And I think that that kind of um, 
physical fatigue and breakdown um, and mental breakdown is certainly inherent in, in some of what you're saying here. I think, and I think that the way people look at running, and, and maybe um, even the way it um, burst up with such energy in the '70s and '80s, like this is a, a badge of honor. You could do this, and, and and believe me, running a marathon is still one of the most authentic things athletically that anyone can do, whether you're Meb Kofleski or, or, or Sarah Hall or, or you or me, right? It's, it's, it's a big endeavor. Um, the, the challenge I see is that it relates to running shoes is that, yeah, it's like, it's like you're, you're buying this shoe for a hundred bucks, 120 bucks. And, you know, are you trained well enough? Are you physical, you know, physically fit enough to get through that without having a lot of um, irreparable damage, you know, and, and, and that just, that's just one aspect of what you just kind of uh, mentioned there. And I think it might be the main aspect. You know, you mentioned Sarah Hall, and there's nobody who's going to watch her finish at the London Marathon without thinking, I'm going running now. You know, Absolutely. Like, that was hugely inspiring. Sends tingles up your spine. And, yeah. and so and that's the same that's the same thing Frank Schroeder did for a televised audience for the nineteen seventy two Olympics when he won the gold medal, right? I mean that's you know, you, you imagine that back then and you know, certainly we see more finishes of races now. And certainly to your point, yes, yeah, Sarah's effort was extraordinary, even even if you don't know who she is. But it was, it was an amazing effort, right? But but that if you think about how the running boom started, you know, Frank probably did the same thing for, you know, a generation of people. You know, honestly, Brian, that'd be a really interesting article. Has anybody been more influential worldwide than Frank Shorter entering the stadium in Munich in 1972? Like, That's a good, a good question. It launched the running boom. And I mean, as soon as, soon as you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I remember that. I was like a 10-year-old. I remember that. And when you think of what happened after that, like, you didn't even need to see the race. You, all you needed to see was 30 seconds right. of him entering the stadium, circling the track, breaking the tape. Uh, and, and again, it was iconic. And it really launched, you know, what came after that, Blue Ribbon Sports, Nike, everything came after that. So yeah. – yeah, you could probably look back in the history of sports. Has anything had longer, wider, and more lasting effect than Frank Shorter's victory? Um, but basically, you know, so here's what it comes down to is, I mean, I love simple answers. I'm like, hey, here's the problem, and I'm so smart, I got the answer. But in this one, I really don't have the answer. Uh, I think the problem is basically this, is that when people start to run, immediately the conversation shifts to races. I, I just met a woman here who's an orthopedic surgeon, and she goes, nine out of every 10 athletes are in her office. The first question out of their mouth is, am I still going to be able to do my race? Not yeah. like, hey, dude, can you fix my torn meniscus? It's like, I got a triathlon in two weeks. Can I still do it? And so the problem is that we're so focused on achievement, performance, competition, that we forget about style, uh, rest, proper buildup, technique. That's all secondary. And so- at the same time, though, the fact that you are focused on that race, dude, you and I both know it. If it's a year without a race, pretty much it's a year without us training at capacity, you know? Right, right. The, no matter what I say about the, the love and the artistry and the joy of, of pure sport, it's one thing to enjoy. It's another thing to, holy shit, I got Leadville in two months. I better up my game. So there, there's some kind of balancing. You know, so maybe in the end, maybe something like martial arts training, you know, where it is very disciplined as to the levels you reach and you have to uh, achieve one milestone before you can move on to the next one. Uh, you know, maybe ideally there's something like that out there where people are instructed that this is an art that will serve you beautifully your entire life if you take the time to learn it. If you try to just jump into the ring and smash around and throw karate chops, you're going to break your hand and you're going to be out with an injury. So, you know, maybe running can adopt that kind of a model. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great analogy. I mean, I think certainly that at some level, uh, hopefully, the goal is we we develop a, a love for this this running and this this passion becomes real and authentic, and and not just chasing you know, finish lines and finisher medals. Uh, though I, I do understand the enticement. I do understand that burst of, uh, achievement, you know, during a year, especially a year like this when unfortunately no one's racing, but I mean, like, you know, we go through the grind of life and, you know, that's, you know, family and that's work and it's all these things and, and everything's more complicated. And so if you find time to squeeze in some training, even if not optimal, and you get this, this finisher medal, cause you, you trained and you finished the Chicago marathon, you know, pat yourself on the back. That's great. But, but I agree too, though, that it's gotta be much more than that. It's gotta be, um, some kind of life sustaining kind of life changing life defining kind of element in your life to be able to, you know, certainly do it for a long time and, or do it consistently, which I think is one of the keys too, um, and do it well. And I think that certainly if you look at the crosshairs between, you know, running shoes, cause that's what we're talking about, but also running and, and races and injuries and, and, and life passions. I mean, like you, you can look at other things and people love to golf too, or people love to hike. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if those sports have the, the detriment that running does because, you know, certainly running has, um, a huge dark side of, of, of injuries and, and depression and, and, and all these things that the results kind of directly related to your supposed love of running. So it is a weird mix for sure. And I think that there's something in there that we're all, as a society have been dealing with or, or maybe not dealing with, um, since the seventies, you know, since this running boom, you know, changed the world, we were publicly fit. We were, you know, our public display of fitness all that. I mean, like it's, it is crazy to think about. And, and then, then what if we didn't have it right? Or, or, or maybe to your point, what if it was more, um, you know, more, uh, kind of, uh, woven into the fabric of what we do, like breathing or having breakfast, you know, I mean, those, it's, it's certainly, it, it certainly is a bit obtuse still in this day and age. Um, to how running, you know, fits in. Um, it's, it's different than like, I watched the NBA finals, but I didn't also go out and play, you know, pick up basketball. It's like, but, but I'm, 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 you know, running and I'm running marathons. Right. And I, or I watch NHL hockey and I sometimes play ice hockey in the wintertime, but, but it's not the same thing. Right. There's this, there's this thing about running and, and probably triathlon too, that it's such a diligent pursuit um, with this notable dark side. You know, it's interesting when I was working on natural born heroes, uh, I was looking at, some physiology studies. And one thing that was really kind of cool to me was, again, it's apparent to you when you run, but you don't really realize because it's so normal, which is that as your body enters a, a state of distress, as you're physically taxed, as your heart rate goes up, you're, you develop tunnel vision. You know, it, it becomes a defense mechanism, which is that when your body feels like it is stressing, it will suddenly zero in on what's only immediately in front of it. And a lot of guys, like like Phil Maffetone, the guys who are very dogmatic about heart rate monitor training, um, say that this is basically a sign that you've entered your red zone. It's like, if you're out for a run, like, man, it's a beautiful day. Look at those clouds. And then next thing you know, all you see is like a square foot of pavement in front of you. Like all you're doing is watching the area right in front of your feet. You've entered that distress zone. And I feel like for a long time, like nine out of every 10 of my runs was that. Like you start off, yeah. hey, beautiful day. Hey, I'm you know having a good time with my buddy. And next thing I know, I'm just staring at the ground, just like, when is this going to end? And th that's basically it. We want to get into that state where most of our runs are the opposite. You know, I thought it was Arthur Lydiard's thing too. Was yeah. his only thought was for that that uh, what was it, the Auckland Sunday Morning Running Club? He had cardiac patients out there, right? Right. And the way he guaranteed that these guys were not going to have like a major episode and keel over 
was always run at a conversational pace. And the guy who started jogging worldwide said, if you can't chat, you shouldn't, you shouldn't run. And so, so those are the things, those are kind of the guidelines. You know, I'll tell you, Matt, Brian, here's, this is what we can do, man. I've always felt like if Phil Knight ever wanted to win a Nobel Prize, he could. You know, if he figured out a way to make running a healthy, enjoyable activity for everybody worldwide, this dude would revolutionize fitness and health across right, the globe. Right. And I think it's possible. You know, I think it's very possible. You know, if you set up this this motivation, the, the new normal is not to race. The new normal is to collaborate. The new normal is to be with friends in a club and to chat and to learn technique. I think you could set up a new normal for running that way. And instead of like, got to sign up for a race, got to get the shoes, got to go fast. Um, and you could do that. You could launch that initiative in every major town across the globe for a few billion dollars. But man, the lasting effects would be unbelievable. Right, right. And it's, and it's hard to, to walk away from a you know, $40 billion company with all of a sudden a different mindset. But but yeah, someone like him could do that, you know, and I think that certainly, you know, running when it was first uh, kind of becoming a public thing in the, in the 60s and 70s. I mean, certainly, you know, there was a jogging craze and it was, it was initially about health, right, I think, and um, or the emulation of athletes and, and, and kind of the health they had. And certainly at some point it became vanity. And, and I'm not saying that's entirely bad. There was definitely motivational factors for that as well. And, and that's certainly how it, it grew. But then it became, like I said, marketing and became all these other things. And inherently, if, if you are running um, consistently, you know, it's still a healthy activity. But because there's so many layers of stuff, you know, and like stuff that gets in the way of this easy path to healthy fitness and just pure aerobic development, which you spoke of before, you know, aerobic development does so much to uh, facilitate other systems in your body, you know, digestive system, your respiratory system, all these things to make you healthier, not, not to mention making you stronger for simply walking upstairs. Right. But, but so many other things have gotten in the way of running that it's obviously, you know, turned uh, and zigged and zagged throughout the years. And, and here we are still talking about this in 2020 and it, and it might just be, you know, someone like Phil Knight, who has a company and has the money or a pandemic to change the world, right? I mean, it seems like, you know, people were getting out and, and running and this is just conjecture, but running for the sake of that's all they had, right? Uh, especially back in March, April, you know, May and like, and like just, um, you know, getting out to run and, and, and new people running, running too. So, I mean, you know, who knows where this, this year and this crazy COVID thing goes, but certainly that could be a game changer too. People realizing the very basic elements, the primal elements of movement and uh, physicality and of, of fitness. And, you know, hopefully that, that, that's a positive effect out of this crazy year. Yeah, it'd be great, Brian, if this became the year of technique, you know, the, the year of craftsmanship, because we can't really run with a lot of other people. Uh, races are canceled. Um, so all the opportunities to compete are really kind of gone. So in some ways, this is the perfect set of circumstances to get back to ground zero and work on the skill. Because yeah. the thing about it is, you know, I got a lot of really good advice for Born to Run when I was working with Eric Orton, who, who trained me for the Copper Canyon race, um, there were a couple of like, nuggets of wisdom which were super useful. But one of them was, you know, even early on, you know, we sort of all saw this during the minimalism boom was that people immediately get, went right from like the Nike Pegasus right to the Five Fingers and they were still training for their same races. So they were training for a marathon. They got excited by the Five Fingers. They, they chucked the Pegasus, put on the Five Fingers and continued their half marathon training. And they were just coming down with a rash of like, you know, Achilles strains. But, you know, in Born to Run, I was asking the same question. Eric Gordon was telling me this, and man, cushion running shoes are a really 
detrimental. And I said, well, good. Should I run barefoot to prepare for the Copper Canyon race? Like, dude, you got a 50 mile race in six months. Like, no, you, you don't change the horse in midstream. You know, that's a long term goal. But these two things can't exist in the same universe. You can't train for a 50 mile race and undergo a major footwear and style transformation at the same time. You got to do one or the other. Yeah, and so true. now that the race has been the races have been removed, it'd be a great opportunity for people to reboot. You know, and say, hey, I'm not worried about putting in a daily 10. I'm going to work on a daily one or two miles. But those one or two miles are going to be all about form. Uh, and the second thing Eric talked to me about was ultimate goals, like bigger goals. And, you know, at the time he and I were having this conversation, I guess I was in my like early 40s or something like that, and uh, or 40s. And he's like, you know, what, what are your aspirations? Like, do you, do you hope to do like the Ironman in Kona? Do you want to like be an age group guy at Western States? And I'm like, no, like none of that, none of that. I just want to be able to go out the door and run as far as I feel like on any given day. And he's like, perfect. Like, let's focus on that. And it's now funny because like 12 years later, that's exactly what Eric accomplished. Um, I feel like I can walk out the door on any given day, run as far as I want, as fast as I want, or as short as I want, and as slow as I want. Number one, it doesn't matter to me. Like my, my ego is not tied into my daily run. But secondly, I feel like I got the uh, the tools. Like I got the the raw hardware where I know that, hey, I'm feeling good today, man. I'm feeling frisky. I think I'll do 12 miles of trail, or I feel like crap. I'm going to do two miles of just like plodding. Um, I can do it. I can do it. I can walk away from that run injury free. So it'd be really kind of curious if people decide, hey, for this year, that's going to be my goal. Just to make it recreational, focus on style. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. I mean, I, I think getting back to those primal movements, movements is a key thing. I mean, I, I've actually uh, spent part of this year trying to rebuild strength and everything else, and um, you know, just to get you know, structurally sound. And, and then, you know, next year I'll yeah, I'll focus on maybe not on races, but I'm just I'm running again. You know, I've I've, I've run quite a bit, but I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to get structurally sound. And like I heard someone say, you know, probably back in June, if if you can't get your shit together in a year, the, the, the one year in your, in, in this generation or many generations that something came in and said, okay, here's this timeout for the entire world, get your shit together. Obviously then if you can't do it this year, you can't do it any year. So um, certainly uh, you mentioned one thing that said, you know, I think you said, and, and I've only heard a couple of people say this, but I don't disagree either. Um, that, that, that soft uh, foamy running shoes are not really conducive to running well. And I think that, um, you know, it's, 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 it's funny and laughable, but also a little bit, you know, maybe uh, sad and disappointing too, though, that, you know, we, we saw the, the evolution of running go from this minimalist movement, um, 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and all of a sudden turn on a dime into uh, a back to a foam story. Um, certainly Hoka came out with these first maximalist shoes, um, 2011 or so, and and people are like, what? I thought it was about minimalism. And, you know, I think, I think the one thing people connected with is like, oh, yeah, they feel good. They feel soft. And, and, and we'll get to that in a second. And then, you know, from there, I think the next one of the next biggest things was uh, Adidas. Adidas came out with this, this boost foam that was revolutionary. It was, it was cushioned, but it, but it was also it was damping, but it was also like this extraordinarily springy foam, too. And so that's led to a whole evolution in performance. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But getting back to that, we, we turned on a dime from being this minimalist thing where we were focusing on form. There was, it was for the first time this attention with uh, the, the age group runners in the, in the, you know, in the mass participation aspect of the sport, people focusing on how to run and doing drills and understanding how and where your foot should land and everything else too. No, no, we want foam. Is this, is this comfy? I like these. And, and, you know, it's kind of gone off since then. And, and, um, 
you know, perhaps that's that's unfortunate. But I, I would say that, like, you know, if you were a golfer taking lessons, you wouldn't know all, all of a sudden say, oh, hey, I'm just going to hit it anywhere. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a strange thing. We, we, we were right there and had a lot of these good things built into kind of what was being talked about. And all of a sudden, like, oh, no, it's comfy. We want comfy. And, and, and kind of here we are. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing, Brian. I was, um, it's unavoidable these days, but it feels like every conversation at some point circles back to politics. But I, I came across uh, an essay recently I was reading, and the writer was basically saying, you know, the situation we're in today is that contempt is a lot easier than empathy. You know, empathy forces you to really listen and put yourself in somebody else's shoes and maybe question some of your own behavior. Empathy with another person is not a comfortable or easy process, but contempt is awesome. It's yeah. easy to judge, you know, like yeah, I do yeah. it all the time. Like if I disagree with somebody, I got a choice. I disagree with you. I can either listen, hear your viewpoint, question myself and make an apology, or I can say you're full of shit and you're wrong. <laughs> right. And so yeah, yeah. it's way more tempting to go with plan B, you know, contempt. Yeah. And I feel like with any, physical activity, it's kind of a similar thing, right? I can either take the time to like learn how to play the piano, which is really painful and time consuming and repetitive and boring, or I just bash away, you know, just do chopsticks over and over again. Right, and right. so not or many just, people- Or just play your favorite songs on YouTube because everything's at your fingertips, you know? And- yeah, yeah, right. So you take the shortcut, you get the immediate gratification. But of course, you know, the, the liability of the shortcut, shortcut is there's no progression. You know, you basically top out really fast. And so you basically that's that's the situation faces people. So I think with running shoes, that was basically it. The path of minimalism is learning to play the piano. You got the, the craft, the craft of running. Totally. Take your time, repeat it. And it's funny, when I have conversations with people about this, I'll tell them this one thing that to me is really exciting. I, I think about form all the time. And to me, that's exciting. And I can see the look in most people's eyes are like, oh, God, no way. I don't want to, I just want to put my AirPods in, man, and listen to a good jam. I don't want to think about form. I don't want to play the piano scales over and over again. But I don't know if this is your experience, Brian, but to me, that actually makes the run interesting. You know, right, like, do, right. you, do, you, do you like that part of running where you think about, hey, man, is my back straight? Is like, am I leading with the hips? Like, do you like that stuff? I think that um, I've always I've always marveled at some of the elite athletes that, that have gotten to know pretty well. Uh, Meb Kafleski, uh, Dina Castor, those people that had long careers, you know. And I think that what I appreciated most about them is that, is that as much as they made time for everything else, uh, you know, they were always sticking around to do their drills and to do their strength and, and, and you know, all this different thing. You know, we, we think that running is about running. And if you want to be a runner, hey, I want to run a marathon. Okay, great. But people think it's just about running, right? And it's so much more than that, right? As with anything in life, it's not just what you see, it's what you don't see. And it's the dirty work, right? Like, you, like you're mentioning. Yeah, it's like, it's one thing to sit down at a piano and just, you know, maybe play a song. But but to, to do that, to get to that point, there's a lot of a lot of work and a lot of individual cord work and finger work, all this stuff. And so I think with running, um, and what's intrigued me, I was I was a decent high school runner and uh, a very average college runner. But, but I appreciate that background because it taught me certainly um, the tenets of good form of, of certainly of doing drills of stretching. And, and when I don't do that, when I admittedly get lazy, right. And don't do that stuff. That's when I break down. Right. And, I, and it's my own fault. And so I think, um, 
I think, yeah, getting back to the craft of running, I think that we were right there about 10 years ago and we were talking about it and it was conversation and brands were invested, you know, because they were selling stuff. But, uh, but then all of a sudden it went away because all of a sudden things were cushy and, and good. And then all of a sudden people got faster because they actually had better foams and different foams. And, and it's, it's almost a sad thing because I'm not sure we'll get back to this point that we were 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't know either. And, you know, I think the thing about people getting faster it's that nebulous thing. Um, you know, it, it's that thing that's really kind of hard to, to put a finger on whether it's actually happening. Are, are humans getting faster? Yeah. Um, the high end, the, the tenth of the one hundredth of one percentile are getting faster. Are the rest of us? Probably not. And also, if we try to get faster, is following the lead of Med Kavlesky the way to go in terms of footwear or following the lead of Med Kavlesky? which is being still freaking competitive in your 50s, the way to go. Right, you know, right, like, right, right. Like the fact of all the work he does and the focus on training. But yet, if people look at him, the first question I ask is, what's he wearing? Not like, yeah. what's he doing on the track at 9 o'clock at night? So, again, I don't know if we'll ever get back to it. Uh, and it's kind of tragic because I really don't think that there is any profit in craftsmanship. I just don't think there's any money to be made from the companies. But there's a ton of money to be made from every six months saying, hey, look, new, brand new, brand new. Right. That's basically what it comes down to. It's an argument between new versus old because craft is very, very old. You know, there's nothing, nothing that's um, uh, uh, – what was it? Percy Sardi. There's nothing that Percy Sardi was doing in 1950 right. that Sarah Hall is not doing today. I, I, right. I, I will almost guarantee that Sarah Hall is doing the exact same thing that Percy Sardi was teaching. Or, or, or one degree different, right? Right. You know, but as far as the basics, the fundamental, the form, you know, um, dude, who, who was Sarity's, who was Sarity's, uh, disciple, the guy that, um, the great miler. Yeah. Elliot, um, um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, shit. I, I should actually have my names before I start using analogies, but basically I bet you could, you know, you could take a great runner from the 1940s and put them side by side with a great runner from 2020 and form-wise, they're going to be identical. There's going to be almost no difference in what they're doing. And so the thing that's about it, the thing about it is you can't market that. You can't sell it. You can make money off of it. But you roll out a brand new shoe every three months with some you know, fancy new pro, uh, you know, uh, technology in it, you're going to make a billion bucks. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think that, you know, I've asked the question to many brands that, you know, uh, I've gone to many trade shows twice a year and seen new shoes. And I've often wondered like, okay, we're going to have this same conversation next year with, with this brand at this booth, at this trade show. And you're going to be telling me about this great shoe. You know, when I know that last year's shoe, you said the same thing and like the foam and the configuration and this and that and the flex. And my, my question to them is always like, okay, well, um, isn't this, isn't this the best shoe right now you think? And, and why, why can't this concept last for a long time? And like, you know, you see that in every, every product, consumer product, you know, whether it be phones um, or cars, I mean, there's always a new model coming out, right? And that's, that's, that's marketing 101, that's capitalism 101, right? And, um, you know, sadly, there's been a lot of good shoes that have kind of, you know, lost to history because um, someone had to make one more. And that's, that's really an environmental story more than anything else. I think the overconsumption, uh, especially in the running running world, is is pretty uh, pretty drastic. I think that um, you know the running shoe business has really kind of hurt itself because there's crazy overproduction and 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 stores and runners can't consume them fast enough, but they feel like they have to. You know, it's it's kind of like if you read Fast Food Nation and kind of how the you know McDonald's created this 
this different food culture, not only how we eat, you know, and eat in our cars on the run, but like, but all the way back to, you know, how potatoes are produced. And like, you know, it's a really good story. If you go to Idaho, they used to, you know, certainly harvest potatoes the old fashioned way with, with shovels and tractors. But they, now they have these, you know, or back then they developed these, um, these spud guns where basically McDonald's needed so many French fries cut up. They were taking these, um, potatoes right out of the field and putting them into this machine that was shooting them through a gun and making them French fries right there. You know, you basically shoot it across <laughs> these blades and oh that's, you know, that, that's the speed of business, you know? And I think, unfortunately, uh, there's this notion that like, you know, that two things, one, that we, we always need the, the, the bigger, better, faster, more concept. <clears throat> and we know that running shoes wear out. So it's very convenient for this industry and for these brands to know that like, yeah, if you get a pair of running shoes and maybe you run 300 to 500 miles, or maybe you don't, but maybe they look, look worn and everything else and you just don't feel as good, uh, that people are going to go out and buy a new pair. And so um, it, it's kind of a weird scenario and how that relates to fitness or your health in long-term health um, are sometimes and oftentimes contradictory, I think. And, 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 you know, the brands never talk about that. They, they always talk about how great these new shoes are. And to a large extent, they are great. They're, they're, they're new, newly designed and there's new materials and stuff like that. But again, the whole backside is, you know, how healthy is your running? How healthy is your body? And I think that, you know, again, that, that crosshairs of production and, you know, that inherent value of running is, is often like, you know, perpendicular. You know, so let me make the conversation even more complicated. Uh, the guy with no answers, which is that I should also point out, I love running shoes, man. Like every once in a while I come across a shoe, like, oh my God, I'm so glad this exists. And I have to acknowledge this only exists because someone improved or changed something that didn't exist before, you know? And so um, here's, a, here's an example. So Ultra has a cross-country shoe. I'm pretty sure it's called the Vapor. Um, I don't know if you know that one. It's the one with the mesh top. Yep, yep. Super, super low profile. So uh, I was at the Ultra Running Company in Charlotte, North Carolina recently, or last, like, God, last year. And uh, – kind of browsing the eyes. I'm like, man, what are these? And I tried them on. They felt amazing. Well, now, dude, I've got two pair of these things. So I bought one pair at retail and then they just went on sale a little while ago. And so I bought another pair. But the first pair will outlive me, man. Like my grandkids, because it's never going to wear out. Right, right. And, but at the same time, hey, it's on sale for 50 bucks. I got to get it because what if, you know? So now I got two pairs of these things that I will never, ever run to the end of their lifespan. And then same thing, there's a Joe's New Balance outlet. I feel like I should be running ads on your site for this. The Joe's <laughs> New Balance outlet, I don't know if you've ever checked them out. but Oh, you know, I know. I'm, 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 I'm very aware of it, yeah. Yeah. So you got you to gotta check back with them all the time because it's like you know, hit or miss. They'll get something great and then it's gone. And I was like sniffing around, hey, man, the original Minimus was on sale. And it was like something like $39. So I grabbed a pair of the Minimus in my size. And same thing. So I'm running trails out of here in Hawaii. I'd forgotten how great the original Minimus was. Like I haven't worn a pair in years. I mean, Amazing man, shoes. And, and, and the New Balance 101, which I still have my original pair of. I, I love those. Yeah. Well, see, I, I, I drifted toward the uh, the 10V4, you know, the empty okay. 10V4. It's yeah, got a little yeah. more lift, a little more cushion. And I, I don't know why. I just picked up a pair I really liked it, got another pair I really liked it. And sort of forgot about, you know, the original, the, the, the V1. Got a pair of those. I'm like, holy shit, this is an amazing shoe. But – after running on them now, it's been two months since I've been here. I'm looking at the sole. There's no wear on the sole at all. And I've run in them four out of 10 runs is in the minimus. And I'm thinking, oh, this shoe is now going to last seven or eight years. 
you know, yeah, five years I- minimum. <laughs> but it's not going to stop me. If I ever see another pair of minimums on sale, I'm going to buy them, you know. So I got to say, in defense of the shoe companies, every once in a while, they turn out something which is beautiful. It, it, yep. It's performance enhancing in a good way. It feels wonderful. And the level of detail from the collar to the laces to the midsole, fantastic stitching, fantastic. So what do you do? You know, like I also don't want to play into the whole overconsumption thing. At the same time, I definitely appreciate when a gym comes along. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, but get back to your point. I mean, like, the, the, they're masters of of, of modern industrial uh, consumer product design. You know, and like that's part of wanting it because you know you interpret that. Or I I tell people that like happiness is a new pair of shoes, right? And what does that mean? You put them on, and then then all of a sudden you're inspired. That getting back to the race is like, oh, I'm gonna sign up for a race, and like there's all these multi level things, and like. To your point about the ultra shoe, which I think actually was called the Vanish and not the, not the Vapor, but Vanish, similar. But, that's uh, it. but, but right. I have a pair of those, and those are great. And like, um, I mean, there there there's not much to them, but but yeah, you can run on them for a, a long, long time. And a lot of these shoes, and you don't necessarily wear them out because of these materials, these new materials, are so well um, thought out, they're well put together. They're built for durability. They're built for you know energy return. All these things, and um, it's changed the game. I, I remember as a kid, I'd wear out shoes all the time, right? And um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, these ultra running miles I'm putting in now are much harsher than my, you know, my kids, my, my uh, you know, grade school recess days. But, but it, it is amazing how things have changed in that way. And, and yet, you know, we are inspired to, to keep buying more and more shoes. Hey, uh, have you gotten into swim run at all? A little bit. Yeah, I think that's, that's a cool thing. I've done one and certainly that fits my, um, my vibe a little more. I've been doing a lot of triathlons, but I, I don't really like the sport of triathlon. I like the training aspect. Um, but swim run is fun uh, because it, it's 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 a little bit more raw, a little bit more primal, and so you're you're kind of running, you're in, and you're in the water, and then you're swimming, and it's 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 like um, it, it's it's something that I would have done as a kid, although it wouldn't have been safe, I suppose, back then. But uh, yeah, super cool. Yeah, so that's what I've started playing around with now, and, and I, you know, I wonder if in some ways this could be sort of an answer to the question. So you, I'm sort of always looking for like the perfect model. Like, Hey, if, if I'm bashing on running marathons if I'm bashing on shoes, I'm, I'm shitting on everything. Well, what, what is it that in fact I'm in favor of? And so, um, since I've been here in Hawaii, it's kind of a natural thing because you can go for a run and all of a sudden you're facing a body of water and you're hot. Why not go in and swim a little bit? And there's sections where like, if you run on the beach, all of a sudden, the beach ends and it's all like rocky and you got to go like a couple hundred yards around the rocks. And so what I've been getting into is, is that swim run thing. But what's cool about the sport of swim run is that that buddy system. So I don't know if this is universal for all races, but the original design was you had to be tethered to your buddy. Your buddy could never be more than whatever it was, like 50 feet away from you. And what what I love about that is Every element of the sport is almost designed to focus you back on your humanity because sure. either you're a good swimmer or you're a good runner, probably not both. So several times in the same race, you're going to be humbled. Uh, secondly, you've got to think about somebody else, man. You can't go thrashing off across the lake and leave your partner behind. The two of you got to uh, function as a team. And that, that forced proximity, I think, really makes you take a breath. How's my partner doing? Get outside your own head. And then also that transitioning back and forth, you're going to be kind of like mildly uncomfortable. It reminds you of things like chafing. You kind of forgot about chafing because I don't know what it is, whether it's the the shorts are better or whatever it is, but 
I feel like chafing was almost kind of a thing of the past to a large extent. But if you do swim run, suddenly, man, chafing is back with a vengeance. Yeah, so you sure, got to think sure. about everything right? soggy. Everything's soggy, right? Yeah, yeah. And then and also running form, because when you get out of the water, those first few steps makes you feel like you've never run before. Like when you right, transition right. from running to from swimming to running, holy shit, what's wrong with my legs? No, so no, anyway, that's great. I, I've been doing that recently. And to me, it's like this could be a glimmer of a better future of, of those all those elements. Oh, so oh, okay. do it. The reason I started thinking about it, that's why the Ultra Vanish is so amazing. It's an amazing yeah. swim run shoe. That's good. That's a good point. Yeah, very well draining for sure. Um, your point about chafing is interesting because yeah, it seems like a thing of the '80s and '90s and like the you know the running boom that's kind of behind us because yeah, we have better shirts that don't chafe and we have you know, better materials and, and all these things and 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 so that, and your point, swim run is kind of the uh, the contrary to what the marathon is right, which is an individual pursuit of of one singular discipline and everything else and and, and swim run obviously is is collective and, and certainly more than one sport obviously but um uh but but switching switching gears back to, to running shoes in the marathon the one thing we haven't talked about yet which i want to talk about is um certainly all these carbon fiber plated shoes that have changed the game in marathon running uh combined with the these super springy resilient foams and you know uh we all know the story about um Eli Kipchoge, you know breaking two in the marathon a year ago right about now um and and I guess unofficially, but also running 201 in the world record, these, these shoes that Nike's put out. And now every other brand has, um, you know, this, this shoe concept with its uh, high stack of foam with a carbon fiber, a curved carbon fiber plate in it that, that either, depending on how you look at it, uh, you know, aids in energy return or propulsion or even even uh, helps you use less energy as you, as you spring off. But obviously, this new paradigm is here to stay, it seems, and especially because uh, World Athletics has sanctioned it, um, at least after working with Nike to sanction it. But uh, it seems like obviously it, it's changed the game of running and performance running, at least for that uh, front 5% of the pack. Um, but what's your take on all this? I mean, it's, it's obviously, you know, people say it's, it's mechanical doping. People say it's, um, it's, it's not fair to compare your records or even your own PRs from five years ago. Um, it's entirely changed. People are, are investing in these things for their kids in high school. And that, that's a big disparity economically where, you know, if some kid has a $250 pair of shoes on that makes them go much faster than the kid who maybe can't afford that and is just out there trying to do his best. And there's a whole bunch of different uh, points of view on this, but it, it seems like it's, gosh, I mean, talk about changing the running shoe game, right? Yeah, I guess so. You know, I think, you know, I bet you if you ask most runners today, who's John Cogway? They don't remember, you know? Right. Uh, if you ask them who had the marathon world record five years ago, no one has a clue. Right. And nobody cares. And unfortunately, I think, there's this difficulty we have with, with sports, which is the spectator element. It's really exciting to watch somebody else do something, but it's a, it's a momentary drug hit, you know, you know it, it's a momentary, like, you know, hit on, on the, the adrenaline pipe to watch somebody else. Even just a couple seconds ago, I was talking about Sarah Hall. I loved watching her before. It was magnificent. But a couple of days later, you just kind of forget about it. You move on, you know? And so all, all this talk about you know, the high performance athletes and their shoes and their training, eh, it just doesn't really matter to any of us in our daily life. We're not going to run like that. We're not going to train like that. We're not going to follow their example. We're not even going to remember them. And right. so, you know, I guess the end of it is, like you said, man, happiness is a new pair of shoes. It's great to get a new toy. New toys are fun. Um, I just kind of really wish there was more of a balance. Like, hey, man, let's, let's get excited about the new carbony, you know, vapory, wherever it is, you know, the, 
the new super design thing, but really let's also get back to school and do our homework and figure out what it is that we, we need for ourselves. Because none of that stuff, none of that technology, you can put those shoes on my feet and I guarantee you it's not going to make any goddamn difference in the way I perform, you know? Right, I'm, right. I'm a 58-year-old male with like an extra 15 pounds on my ass. So the last thing I need to worry about is footwear. You know, The first thing I need to worry about is improving my diet, improving my training, getting more rest. You know, There are a hundred things that will make a huge impact in my performance and shoes are at the very bottom of the list. And so that's, that's basically what I'm kind of looking for is that, yeah, man, it's cool to get excited about the new toy, you know, the new toy in the, in the cereal box. But at the same time, you got to eat the healthy cereal and it's the healthy cereal part that we're still wrestling with. Yeah, absolutely. I think to your point, I think, I think most runners, I mean, like, honestly, I think that the, the vast majority of runners outside of that elite population, <clears throat> uh, the shoe doesn't do as much as they think. I think that it, it, they can all do much, much more um, to train well, to be healthy, to have it be more of a lifelong pursuit or a lifelong aspect of health than buying a pair of shoes um, and, and training it. And that, that being said, I too love running shoes. And obviously I'm uh, read a book about uh, running shoes and have a podcast about running shoes. But I think, I think too, though, I think that there's so many other things. And uh, Steve Jones, the former world record uh, holder in the marathon, um, you know, super hardworking guy. And like, was always like a, a Spartan mentality when he, when he raced and he, he lives here in Boulder. And he said, yeah, he's like, Brian, he's like, he's like everything, everything I train my runners to do, it's all about, you know, uh, being stronger, being faster, being more efficient, being smarter, being, you know, but it's pure running. It has nothing to do with the stuff, right? It has nothing to do with the watches, the gels, the, the, the shoes. It's like, if you want to run, you know, here's what you need to do to run. Right. And I think there's still, as you said, whether it's, you know, a runner from the 1940s or Derek Clayton, who, you know, set a, a fast world record in, uh, you know, ran 209 or faster in a pair of, you know, low to the ground uh, shoes that had no cushioning and no padding and no and barely any anything underneath. You know, and and so as much as we've changed, we're still the same. We're still humans. We haven't evolved. Um, you know, a thousandth of a percent in the last you know million years, whatever it is. You know, and 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 yet we're we're, we're forced or cajoled to buy running shoes every year. So it's it's a funny battle. And 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 again, I think yeah, having that kind of lifelong passion of running would change the game for a lot of people, as opposed to just looking at that next finish line or finisher's medal. You know, here's the thing about it, though, Brian. So, you know, maybe, maybe, so no amount of lecturing has ever changed my mind. You know, <laughs> anybody trying to tell me what to do, eh, it's not going to work. But if I have an experience that affects me, that changes my mind. And, you know, you mentioned when you and I saw each other in Chamonix. I mean, I remember that moment very vividly because it was an afternoon and we were sitting on the curb outside a cafe. And yep. Chamonix is just so breathtaking. But the, the vibe, in that town. I'd never been there for UTMB before. It's my first time there. And it just felt so like joyful. Like everybody was excited and having a good time. And I remember feeling like this is what it's all about. Like this is the running experience. And maybe that's going to be the long-term lasting benefit of ultras because you know a lot of ultra runners like hokas. They like the maximum cushioning. But I bet you that if you talk to most ultra runners, again, footwear is probably halfway down their list of priorities. Like they'll find a shoe they like, oh, this is good. And they stop thinking about it. You know, I'm, I'm comfortable in this. I'm good. I'm moving on the next shoe because I got to run 100 miles at altitude. I'm worrying about my cliff shots and my sleep and my caffeine and whether I'm pooping and all that stuff. And suddenly, the more they have to think about, the further from their mind, the footwear becomes. And I feel like 
at UTMB, I, I feel like I experienced that. Like everyone was so excited about the Alps and like the Creps and seeing the friends and like Billy Yang was walking through the crowd. I had the most awesome experience at UTMB because I've been at races in the U.S. and people who recognize me from Born and Run will get really kind of excited and they'll want to get their book signed. Yeah. And so at Chamonix, I was walking around with Billy Yang and we saw this little, little cluster of people like sort of do a double take and like notice us and they come rushing over and I'm like sort of like patting myself down. Like, do I have a Sharpie? I'm ready to sign their book. They didn't give a shit about me at all. They're close around Billy. Like, oh, Billy, you know, we love your podcast. And Billy was very gracious. He said, hey, do you, do you know Chris McDougall? He wrote Born to Run. They, they give me a glance. like, oh yeah. Hey, how you doing? Anyway, Billy, <laughs> you know, would you sign our kids onesie? And uh, yeah, what I loved about it was that, that, that tribal mentality of like, Everyone's having a good time and supporting each other. So in the long run, maybe that's the antidote because you can't even approach UTMB if you haven't got a lot of miles under your belt. And you're not going to get a lot of miles under your belt if you're not doing the proper stuff. So maybe giving people that ultra experience is going to set them on the path to long-term, like lasting, you know, running benefits. Yeah, I can't agree more. I think that, you know, we're just coming off the heels of last week, uh, the Moab 240, uh, Candace Burt's race, race out in, uh, in, in Moab, did 240 miles. I mean, uh, I think, you know, whoever finishes that, it's, we're talking about multiple days, right? And I think that's a different, just a different mindset. It's an existential experience. And that's largely what I think Chamonix is for most people, too. I think that, um, you know, I, I haven't run the UTMB. I've run the CCC, which is the 100K race, you know, from from Italy to Switzerland to France. And, and for me, it was the same thing. It's like I wasn't I wasn't necessarily worried about running or running fast. And I, I can't tell you right now what shoes I wore. But, man, the, the coolest things were listening to different languages uh, during the race. And then, you know, coming across in the middle of the night, it was, it was dark already. And I, I crossed the uh the border from switzerland into france and, and with my, my headlight shining on this wooden post and on one side it says francais on one side it says suisse and i'm like oh this is an international border i'm crossing right and so i think that's what that's that's what you know kind of inspires me to run now uh, as much as anything i think i try to take that in other aspects of my life you know and and, and running I, I still like to do marathons and, and train sometimes but i also think that there's more to it than that and that certainly you know that certainly calms my my everything that I used to get uptight about in other things that were running, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think everyone's going to run ultras, but I think that certainly that's why people are drawn to them. Yeah. And again, it's not the hundred miles, you know, it's not the, the hundred K it's exactly the thing you talked about. Like, Holy shit, it's three o'clock in the morning and I am running into Switzerland. Like what a yeah. bizarre experience you just, you just had. And so I think those are the moments, those are the flashpoint moments in people's lives. If they can have them, then they're going to want to repeat them and they're going to want to share them. And again, it's not about bashing out your fastest 5K or, you know, listening, make sure your, your, your playlist is on while you're doing your training run. It's going to be about the experience, you know, opening your eyes and seeing something you've never seen before. And the only way to get there is with your own two legs being healthy. Absolutely. Talking with Chris McDougall here, we're about down to the end of our time here, but uh, Chris, it's always fascinating talking to you about running and running shoes, even if we don't actually specifically talk about those things. You know, I think there's so much tied to it and adjacent to it as uh, us as these these human animals that uh, certainly makes it fascinating. And I always appreciate how you're able to do that. Um, maybe maybe one more thing for now. I mean, obviously, we, we, we've talked about, you know, certainly um, the, the evolution of running shoes since uh, the minimalist movement and also this environmental scenario, which I really think is a growing um, concern of mine relative to so many shoes being produced. But 
if you step back from all that, we've talked about a lot of different things and, and how how people can uh, kind of find new ways in, into running. But but I mean, like, you know, we know right now that there's the shoes for 2021, 2022, and 2023 already being planned. I guess maybe in your crystal ball um, uh, of what you've experienced in running, where do you think we're going with all this? I mean, like, obviously running is still, there's still races, there's longer races, uh, there's different shoes, there's faster shoes. I mean, like, can the madness ever end or is it something that's out of control? I mean, we, we talked about how we got away from the craft of running 10 years ago. And now we're here, and like, are we on this this um, this deadly roller coaster? Nah, I, I again, I I tend to be a you know sunny side up kind of guy, and I, I feel like we we just reboot each other uh, ourselves every fifteen to twenty years. You know, we we just swing the pendulum back and forth and back and forth. But yet every time we swing, like the, the pendulum swing gets a little bit shorter. So I, I feel like you know we we approach the truth and we get away from it, and we're back to the truth. But every time we we don't get as far from the truth as we were before. I, I think the lesson and the appreciation of minimalism stuck. Um, and even even the Hoka's uh, again, I'm not familiar. I've never actually tried them, but aren't they essentially a zero drop shoe? They, they, they're essentially yeah, they're, they're low drop. I don't know if they're all zero, but they're certainly you know, low. You know, four four uh, four mils, whatever else. And they have a rocker profile, which kind of offsets the, the need for actually counting the actual drop. But it certainly it certainly does. And to your point, I think I think there are many ideas that came out of minimalism that are still relevant today. Lighter shoes, for example. But I think in terms of the Hoka's, yeah, I think the rocker formation certainly helps that uh, helps that transition from touchdown to toe off uh, quite a bit. Yeah, and so I think the thing about it, there's a perfect example. You look at the shoe; it looks like the most stacked maximalist thing out there. At the same time, it took away certain inherent truths from the minimalist movement, incorporating them into them. Uh, again, I've never tried the shoe, and you know, my my personal sort of phobia is I feel like my form is always so close to being crap, you know, like I'm always so close to reverting. I feel like a, a recovered alcoholic, like <laughs> all it's going to take is one cushion shoe, dude, and I'm off the rails. Yeah, and yeah. So I always stay as minimal as possible, just kind of remind myself. But no, I, I think I think that there are things ahead. I, I, it ultimately comes down to this, Brian, whatever gets more people out the door and shaking their asses is a movement in the right direction. Because I think as people run and as they enjoy it, they're going to want to find ways to continue enjoying it. And so, you know, if, if there's going to be all kinds of evolutions about shoes, that's okay. Because like I said, the, the person who goes out there and wants to buy like that $250 pair of Nikes, well, then they're going to want to wear them because, you know, they're going to see them in the closet every day and like, shit, they're going to feel guilty. They're going to want to run. So, you know, maybe ultimately the takeaway from the shoe business is if it gets people excited, even for the wrong reasons, it's still a good thing. I like that. I like that. Chris, it's always been a, a good time talking to you, and this one especially. Certainly uh, lots of nuggets of wisdom and questions to ponder. Uh, Chris McDougall, uh, author of Born to Run, Running with Sherman, and several other books. Thank you very much for joining. Hey, Brian, this is cool, man. I always like it. Thanks a lot. Let's do it again. All right, buddy. Thank you.